because of those hardships is, is that they made me value more the opportunities when they came about. For personal reasons, I wasn't able to continue studies after I finished my um, high school degree, and so I started working. I applied to multiple positions, but I didn't get any, any not even a single call, not even an interview, uh, not even a phone interview, I got nothing. There is this phrase that sticks with me, and it also helps me. This phrase that says that if you don't get rejected, you're not trying hard enough. As female um, researchers, we tend to not ask for more. We tend to not negotiate. I'm fortunate enough that I have this group of amazing women in the field that are like my trust people. And I feel like we have this circle of trust. And I go to them and I say, I feel like I'm totally out of my league. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I let it out with them. I vent out. And they help. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta and I'm your host. This is episode 34, an interview with Tamar Solorio, professor at the University of Houston in the Department of Computer Science. Tamar grew up in Mexico and did her PhD there, and then she immigrated to the US. In this episode, you will hear, in her own words, Tamar's story of how she grew up poor in Mexico, how she nearly did not become a computer scientist, of living amid turbulent political times in Mexico, the difficulties Tamar had in landing academic jobs in the US with a PhD from Mexico, and of raising a family while trying to start up a career as an assistant professor. Tamar Solorio, professor at the University of Houston in the Department of Computer Science. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is structured into acts or chapters. You'll find chapter markers on your audio player, and you can use these to jump between the acts or chapters. I'm delighted to welcome Tamar Solorio to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. Tamar Solorio is a professor at the University of Houston in the Department of Computer Science, where she has been since 2014. She's also currently this year a visiting scientist at Bloomberg. She works on exciting topics including natural language processing, also known as NLP, and applied machine learning, also known as ML, and those acronyms may come up as we talk. She's won many awards for both her research and her leadership in the community. These include the 2014 NSF Career Award, the 2014 Dennis Denton Emerging Leader ABIE Award, a recognition by the Anita Borg Institute, 
And previously for her studies in um, Mexico, for her MS and PhD, she won the National Council for Science and Technology Fellowship from 2000 to 2005. She's also chaired, uh, she's been the program committee co-chair of NAACL 2019, which is the topmost conference in computational linguistics. Uh, Tamar's timeline in chronological order is as follows. Uh, she grew up in Mexico in the 1980s and 1990s. 1996 to 2000, she did her BS in computer science and engineering at the Facultad de Ingeniería Universidad Autónoma de Chihuahua in Chihuahua, Mexico. From 2000 to 2005, she did her MS and PhD in computer science from Instituto Nacional de Astrofísica, Optica y Electrónica, Puebla in Mexico. In 2005, after finishing her PhD, she immigrated to the US. From 2005 to 2009, she was a lecturer and research associate at the University of Texas at Dallas. Then in 2009, she started as a tenure track assistant professor of computer and information sciences at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. In 2014, five years after she started, she moved to the University of Houston, where uh, she was first an associate professor and then a professor. Welcome, Tamar, to the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, and thank you for being willing to share your journey with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start near the beginning. You went to middle and high school in Mexico in the 1980s and 1990s, maybe a sliver of the 1970s. Your background is very unique, and you've spoken about this in public, that you are a first-generation college student, meaning your parents did not go to college. What are your earliest memories at home growing up as a child? Happy memories of it all, uh, the, the result of, you know, parents being concerned about their children, giving them the best of experiences, um, and, you know, besides from them not attending college, other than that, everything was uh, a, very, a very happy, normal, <laughs> normal uh, childhood and into my older years. I was... Interestingly, though, when I think back and I think about how I ended up in this path, um, I was always very uh, keen and interested in puzzles. Like I always uh, liked to solve puzzles, all types of different puzzles as a kid. Um, playing board games, you know, where you have to think about a strategy on how you're going to beat your opponents. I've, I've been always very competitive in my anything I do, I'm competitive. Um, and I also, for some reason, remember that I, I think it was, I was in middle school when for some reason, some summer, my parents enrolled me in this, uh, computer course where I was exposed to some of the first Apple computers and the DOS system, I think it was, I'm not, I don't remember. What grade or what age were you at that time? I think it must've been around 12 or so. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how that came about. Like, I don't remember the conversation if I ask about it or if my parents ask about it. Mm. But I do know that they were concerned about and trying to give us the best of experiences, right? They exposed us to music lessons and mm. Hawaiian dance lessons and all of that. So maybe this is part of what they did. And I found it interesting. I, and I learned how to uh, read and write from a file um, and simple commands, right? Mm. Um, and then I shoved it away, like nothing else happened. I finished that course and I went on to do my normal life. Um, 
But I do have that recollection that at some point I was exposed to a computer. So maybe that made me not be intimidated by mm. them when I encountered them later in life. Mm. So was that experience, it doesn't sound like it was a programming experience, but it was just an experience of using the Unix um, operating system, DOS operating system. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the fear factor was lower later when you encountered it in, in your career. I think so. So I encountered my computers, uh, computers again before I started my bachelor's. And so um, for personal reasons, I wasn't able to continue studies after I finished my um, high school degree. And so I started working. Um, and I work, I work in this video company, video renting company. And um, because I liked the systems and I wasn't afraid of them, like I was in charge of opening the store and getting the computers to run getting them ready for, for the day uh, at the store. Mm. So I will go and turn them on and see them running and make sure that they are uh, all functioning okay. Um, and then I like the process. Like I like the process of, you know, working with these machines. Um, mm. Because again, I think I wasn't intimidated or felt like I was going to break something. That's interesting. So you actually went to work after you finished high school and before you did your bachelor's. What was the thinking then? Um, so it was more like um, like we didn't have a choice really um, mm. because my my economic situation at home, um, and so we had to work. Um, so I just took it like, well, I have to work, um, and because I'm again competitive and I like to do things well, I started like getting a little bit of better position at the at the job. Mm. So I got a better salary and I got more responsibilities and I'm working with the systems. And then at some point, my older sister started college and I was sort of helping support the family and she started going to college and I was like, oh my goodness, but I do want to go to college. Like, I really want to go and get a bachelor's degree. I don't want to stay here as, as good as it is to be like a um, manager or whatever, what I was like, I was, I knew that that wasn't going to be enough for me. And so I kept thinking about that. And then at some point we had this experience where uh, the computer system broke at the store and it was chaos because we have these people that want, wanted to get their, their videos, you know, their, their, their video rentals when back in the day when you had to go to a store and get your movies. <laughs> so Days of Blockbuster and... So. It was a similar thing. It was a Mexican chain. Yeah. Um, and so it was, it was chaos because all the cashiers were just writing down everything writing notes and then taking payments with those machines that everything was super slow so we had super long lines but i think what was most interesting to me is that we couldn't fix the problem and so the chain brought up some tech experts um, from monterrey from a different state they flew them and they were working on it overnight and um, I was there because I, you know, it was one that you had to be there. And I saw them, and I was thinking, like, oh, how cool it is that you are so good at what you do that they they bring you from a different state to work on this, and then they fixed it, right? And so I'm like, I want to do that. I want a job where you know I can I can fix problems, um, and then I get to travel. And so that's how I decided, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. So I look for a career, a bachelor's in uh, computer science. So your parents sent both your elder sister and then you to college. 
they did not go to college. Can you tell me a little bit about their thinking uh, in wanting their kids to do something that they hadn't done? Right. So um, they sent the three of us, like all three of us got our bachelor's degree eventually. Like I was the one that was, um, I, I'm the youngest one. So I was there back when I was time for me to go is the situation wasn't good. Um, but there was no question before then, like they never foresee that we will have this, this difficult situation at some point. Right. But there was always a discussion about careers at home. Like, even though they didn't get one, it was very clear that for them, they expected us to go to school. They expected us to study. And so we talked about careers. And before that experience, I was, um, I, I was thinking all, all the time that I wanted to be an architect. And so we all had these, these you careers. Mean like a, like a building, building architect. Yes, a yes. building architect, not a sober yes. architect. Not a hardware, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so... Um, it was not a question about whether we will get a career like they were expecting us to study and continue studying. And that, that was a discussion that we always had at home. It's just that at some point my parents get divorced and the situation was bad and things went to went south, but um, economically speaking, I guess, um, but they never like that. There wasn't a question. It's just that when this wasn't um, a possibility anymore, because, the university was not, it's not free, even though it's public, it's not entirely free. <laughs> That's why, well, you know, we don't have money, we need to eat and we need to fulfill these, these um, requirements, right, before we can go to study. But then at some point that was, I figured out that I was, I was going to be able to do it if I went, no, no, if I paid for my exam, for my, for my registration at the university and then find um, a part-time job. So since since I finished high school, I've been working and studying, right? Yeah. Non nonstop. Yeah. <laughs> well, until until my fellows, my 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 scholarships to do the, the the PhD, right? Right, right. So this the ethos that you described of um, your parents wanting um, all the three of you siblings to do to study and to do well. Was would you say that was unique to your family or a few families, or was that a very common thing, like social, socially speaking, in other families, like your friends' families and things like that too? Socially speaking, I mean, all all our friends were expected, like in in our, um, I guess, in our social circles, we were all expected to to go to university to get a college degree. Um, I remember only one instance when I I think back, right? I had this friend, this, um, elementary school friend where they were, um, how do you say they were siblings, but like they're born, uh, at the same time. Twins. They're twins. There's a boy and a girl. And I remember that, uh, their parents sent only the boy to college the first year. And it's also like maybe it's a decision of what we have to pay and we don't have enough. So the boy gets to go first. Mm-hmm. Then eventually she started, right? But there's there's a little bit of um, sexism in how do you make decisions uh, about it. But no, in, in our circles, um, older friends went to college. Um, some may have not finished, um, but at least they tried. And the sexism that you're talking about, would you say that was... Um, you gave an example. Would you say that was a special case or would you say 
there were quite a few cases that you remember where boys were preferred over girls in order to go to college. That's the only instance I remember. Um, all my other friends were supported um, in, in, to go to college, like they were not. So there was no um, stigma or bias against girls going into engineering or math? Um, no, 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 not at all. And I, in fact, there was a little bit, I mean, at that time, I felt a little bit jealous of my friends because they had parents, they, they will send them to college, and I didn't have that in my case for a little bit. But Yeah. But that must have been very tough for you, where you wanted to go to college, but then there was not the economic means to go to college, and you had to work. Yeah. I mean, um, if you think about it, it is. Like, I, I hope that doesn't happen to my kids. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm doing all I can so that that is not an, an issue for my kids. It was hard. It was hard, but, you know, it is what it is. And I also think that because of those hardships is, is that they made me value more the opportunities when they came about, right? They made me realize that these are really important opportunities and I'm not going to waste them. Like the fellowship to do a, um, a graduate degree for me is like, this is my chance and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it as fast as possible because we only get five years, even though, you know, some people take like six, seven, whatever, and they extend their fellowship, I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take my five years and I'm going to move on and make sure I have a good career. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Tamar Salorio, professor of computer science at the University of Houston. So returning to your timeline, so in 96, you started the BS in computer science uh, and engineering uh, in Chihuahua. D did you grow up in, in the Chihuahua area or were you, did you have to move from elsewhere? No, I was like, lucky that, that I was in the capital city. Um, and so the university was right there. I didn't have to move away. I had a lot of friends that had to move away from because they were um, their home is at a smaller place and so they had to move away that would have been even more difficult for me if i had to move away mm. at that time so you could stay at home and and uh, study at the yes. university yeah. and work <laughs> uh, oh you were working while you were studying as well oh yeah 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 since 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 i finished high school yeah so were you uh, were you working all the four years of your bachelor's program yep how did you manage that? Because that's that's pretty hard. I mean, this is I presume this is still a full time job, and you're full time student as well. Um, I was a full time student, but I went to a part time job. I see. Like at that time, I I, I was like I had this discussion with uh, my 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 family, my mom and my sisters, and so I said, you know, what I'm going to study, and uh, that means I'm going to bring less money. So you know, everyone has to pitch in. <laughs> So, so we all had to find, figure out things to do. Um, and I went to part-time, but I was lucky because I found, uh, I found good places to work. They would allow me to, uh, to arrive after school. So I went to school in the day and then I was working out. Mm -hmm. And were there other friends of yours who were similarly working part-time and studying or were you one of the few exceptions? Um, that's a good question, but... It was common. I cannot tell exactly what percentage, but it was fairly common. 
that some of us were studying and working. So when you start your bachelor's, uh, did you choose computer science and engineering the major right away or did you choose it at a later point of time? And then how did you make the choice of computer science? Yeah, so it was um, at that time, I'm not sure if things have changed, but where I studied, you have to choose your major from the beginning, from the very beginning where you make your, when you make your exam to get admitted to the school, you say, what is your career choice? Um, I'm not sure if that changed because at that time, even the different departments were physically separate. Like we were, even though there's a huge university where all the majors are under the, the Universidad de Chihuahua, um, the different departments or the different schools were physically also isolated. Now we have a new campus and I think most of the careers are in the same place. I'm not sure if now it's easier to change. Um, and so from the beginning, I chose that because of my experience working in this um, video rental store and my exposure to computer systems. And yeah, so I was um, already interested in this field. Was it competitive to get into university and then to also get into computer science? Was there competition? There is competition. Yes. No so one, how do you get into um, university? What's the, do you have to write an exam? What's the, you have an entrance exam. Is that a nationwide entrance exam or is that a per university? No, it's a, it's a per university. Per university, I see. At least at this point, yes. And does your, so it's purely based on that entrance exam? It's like none of your school grades count? That's a good question. I don't remember. Probably not. Probably it's just mostly your scores that will determine. I see. And then based on your scores, you essentially pick your favorite majors and then they just fill it up from the beginning based on the scores. Yep. And you go to your second choice if you don't make it to the first one, yes. So then in your, you're in your bachelor's and did you get involved in um, trying out research while you were a bachelor's student or did that come later? Yeah, no, we didn't get any exposure. I, during my bachelor's, I got a single class in artificial intelligence. Um, but sadly, that wasn't very exciting because it was a prologue class and I didn't really <laughs> I didn't fell in love like at that time I was thinking about um graduating and joining one of those um what is the name for these companies that the U.S. started to open in in the in Mexico particularly in the border states I see where um I don't remember that what's the name for maquilas in English, but you know, they seem to have good job opportunities for people with a bachelor's in computer science. Mm. Um, and so, you know, remember I had this in the back of my mind that I want to get a good job. Yeah. I want to make money to make sure they were good. Yeah. Um, so I was preparing for that until someone went and gave a talk to the university. Uh, and they talked about these fellowship opportunities to study a master's degree. And I always had this idea that, well, I will go work for a couple of years, get some money, and then I will come back and get a master's. Mm. For some reason, I wanted to do a master's, even though I didn't know um, what it was uh, or research. I just assumed that a, a, another degree will give me better opportunities, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. And this is where you see the lack of some guidance because I didn't have any guidance at home about that, right? Because mm. Mom and dad didn't know, like, mm -hmm. they, they didn't know about this. And so, um, but lucky for me, when I was 
the last semester, that's when I heard about this opportunity to study in Puebla. Mm. So this was a professor from uh, Inaoe uh, trying to recruit students from Chihuahua. Mm. And so he went and gave a talk there. Um, and that was also kind of like an accident that happened because I listened to the talk, um, but I was still wanting to move on to, to Ciudad Juarez and work um, because I had a plan to go move, move with a friend and go work and uh, try out the life as an independent person <laughs> outside home. Mm -hmm. um, but at that time, that plan didn't agree with my mom. And so mm -hmm. my mom was like, no, you're not going to see the forest. It's a horrible, very dangerous city. By that time, you already heard a lot of things. Yeah. Bad things happening at border cities, right? Yeah. So, and, and I wanted to leave home by then because I was already old enough. Yeah. <laughs> I was finishing my bachelor's. So I said, okay, you don't like it that I go to see the forest and I'm going to go study to Puebla. I'm going to get a master's because I get a fel I can get a fellowship and I don't need to worry about money because I'm going to get paid to study. Um, we sounded like a good deal. And so I went there and I applied and I took the, the selection process and I, w I entered. So, yeah. yeah. It's, it's such an interesting combination of a almost an accidental random talk that you heard plus your desire to become an independent woman plus, um, I guess, um, constraints or recommendations by your parents not to go in a particular geographical location that, that led you to do um, the MS and then the PhD in Puebla. Yeah, it's, it's so funny because it didn't have to do anything with me being curious about doing research. I didn't even know what research was at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. right? It's just this is my opportunity. This is my opportunity to explore something else and to go somewhere else and to see other things um, and that was my chance and I took it but then you know very very early on in my master's degree I real I started observing the life of academics um, reading papers because in our master's degrees we were exposed to research we had to do a research project mm -hmm. um, I started reading papers and seeing what the professors do um, and I started liking that life of you know I'm going to focused on a problem and I want to find a good solution to the problem and I want to contribute mm. um, to the field uh, a, a solution that is that is good and I and I wanted to engage in that dialogue I wanted to belong to that community um, mm. of research and, and so it brought out the competitive side in you and also it was yeah. solving puzzles right yeah. yeah and I want to publish and I want to go to conferences and so yeah. right. Your move from Chihuahua to Puebla was, in a sense, your first migration, right? Because Puebla is in the central Mexico. It's a much smaller state than Chihuahua is. Were there cultural differences that you had to adopt to when you, uh, when you, when you moved? That you had to yes, realize, right? yes, definitely. So just some, what, some clarification. So Puebla is smaller in area, right? Chihuahua is the largest state. But population-wise, it's a much bigger city. Mm. Um, and so it was... And, and that was, was what puzzled me about this decision, right, and this discussion with my mom because she preferred to send me, you know, 24 hours away by car as opposed to me being three and a half hours away. So that part is like it's, you know, just three hours away from my, my home. Yeah. And Puebla was like many more hours away in distance. And I'm like, I couldn't understand why. But anyhow, um, 
it was my first uh, experience living outside the home and it was hard. Even though it's the same country and we speak the same language, um, it was just a world of difference, right? I, for the first time, I had to learn how to take a bus, um, how to, you know, go. It was a very small town. It's like, an, a, like a university town, you can think about it, but even smaller. So it's only the institute there. Um, and we don't have bachelors, so it's only uh, graduate students that live there. Um, and I had to go, yeah, so it was an experience, you know, finding a place to rent mm. um, and, you know, yeah, all of those things by yourself. I want to ask a little bit about, so in your bachelor's and also then in your master's and PhD, um, were you, like we see here, one of few women and few girls or were there other women uh, in the program as well? What was the composition? During my bachelor's, uh, we didn't have many. During my bachelor's, there were a few of us, I will say, um, of a group of 25, maybe five, five okay. or six were women. Um, things have changed, though. Currently in Mexico, right? Um, but then, as so that's the starting, and as you go up in your degree, then the numbers start also dropping. Yeah. Like we drop a lot of female students. Uh, we also drop male students as well, right? Along the way, mm. um, they drop out of the major when you know for difficult classes or whatever. Um, but I certainly remember uh, the female students that were with me at the beginning of the semester and didn't finish. Would you say the reasons for that are um, similar to the ones that you talked about before, the economic reasons, social reasons, or were there other factors that affected the low percentage of women? I think at that point, uh, most of the ones I know dropped because they found it really hard, hard to follow up with, keep up with the programming classes or the algorithms class. Math was math and calculus was another one uh, where people just mm. found it hard and either changed majors, uh, they went to a different major, they went to a different school, yeah. The next thing I want to ask about is... Um, is the general overall political and economic situation in Mexico when you were growing up? So when you were in uh, when you were in school, and then also when you were in bachelor's, there were quite a few uh, turbulent events in Mexico. There was the economic crisis in the 1980s. Uh, there was an earthquake in 1985 in Mexico City. Uh, the 1988 elections, which were disputed, then the 1990s, the Zapatista uprising. Did these events affect your career or your life or your family in any way? Or was it mostly that, you know, um, you're removed from these events? For some of them, we were far removed. Like Mexico is really funny in that um, a lot of things are centralized. And a lot of things are observed and experienced by people living in Mexico City and the surrounding areas uh, because that's where mm. the action is happening. Mm. Um, and in the outer states, like we get to, we used to get and hear a lot less. Um, now it's different, right? Because social media and, and the internet expose us to a lot more very quickly. 
Um, but I do remember like some events with when um, Mexico overthrew for the first time the BRI um, political party. Yeah. Um, my parents were involved. Like my parents were like locally involved in uh, march. Like they participated in. Um, how do you say that? Yeah, it's a march, right? It's yeah. a protests. Yeah. It's yeah the civil uh, protests, right? Uh, civil disobedience, and we were there, and and, and they took us with them. I so see. I remember, you know, the the caravan of cars um, and and the the chanting and the. Uh, the feeling and they went to vote when it was like uh, like some people were intimidated to go and cast a vote because um, there was some claims of um, illegal activities and a coercion and all of that. So I was exposed to that and I think that was good. Like that made me uh, always think that we should stand up for our, our values, right? And what we think. What year was this approximately? Very early 1990s, I Early I 1990s, yeah. So you were still in school and you you didn't have really a choice. You just, your parents took you and so you went. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was probably like middle school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they didn't ask me. <laughs> they just took us on. They were going to do this. And, okay. Yeah. yeah. And it was a local, like a local election for the governor of the state that they were supporting. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself... Um, involved um, or at least passionate about political activities because of that experience now in the US or is it? I think so. I think it made me a little bit more engaged. Um, And definitely when I moved to Puebla as well, because then you got to be closer to where things are happening and then you get to hear more and be exposed to to other ideas. um, And that makes me at least concern, I always vote in local elections and here mm. I try to be engaged mm. in what is happening. So returning to, to your timeline, you're doing your MS and then at some point you decide, well, I want to do, I like this research and I want to do a PhD. What was your thinking there? Yeah, so I, at that time when I was about to finish my master's, I was already um, very motivated to continue uh, on research because I figured that that was a career path. Like I didn't know you could just do this for a living, but people were doing that around me, right? My professors were doing that. Um, and I, I decided that, and I was good. Like I didn't find it hard to write a paper. Writing came good, easy for me. Um, and I just found it interesting and digesting ideas, reading papers. Like I, I really liked it and found it easy. Um, it was a natural life for you. Yeah, yeah um, I, it wasn't. Yeah, I never struggled with that. I was. I, I got also very good grades during my master's. Like I didn't mm. struggle with the hard classes. Mm. Um, and um, I wanted to also travel. So I also. I have to be honest and say, you know, that's that's one of the things that also attracted me to this life, right? That yeah. we get to travel and yeah. we get to see new places and. Yeah. Given my current economic situation right at that time, I never, I didn't expect that I was able to afford that for myself unless I had a career that will match this interest of mine. So, In your timeline, you're around 2005 or so, you're nearing the end of your PhD and you're thinking about next steps, career options. What options were you thinking of and um, did you consider uh, options in Mexico or what were, what were the options that you were thinking of? 
No, yeah, but that time I was already thinking about immigrating to the U.S. Um, because my proximity, like growing up in Chihuahua, you are born and you, before you get a passport, you get a visa. Or like at the same time, because you need a passport to get a visa. <laughs> so I grew up going to the U.S. a lot um, and visiting different places. And, you know, when things went good, we went to Disneyland multiple times. And like, so I was very familiar with the U.S. and I was really, really much in love with the U.S. Um, and it was shocking to me when I moved to Puebla and talked to other students and other people that, like, they've never been to the U.S. and they don't even care about the U.S., right? Because in, in central Mexico, they have also these different ideas that I was never exposed to because I just all I saw was the nice things and, and the, and the uh, amusement parks and, and the shopping and everything is clean and everything is nice and it's organized and... Um, and so I was already thinking about that. I, I, I was thinking about, you know, at some point I'm going to go to the U.S. And... You're listening to the interview with Tamar Solorio, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Houston. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. So 2005, when you were finishing your PhD, did you apply for tenure-track positions right away? Oh, so I guess um, I should have clarified that. No, in 2005, I moved to the University of Texas at El Paso. El Paso, okay. Um, in El Paso, Texas. Hmm. Um, I applied to multiple positions, um, but I didn't get any... Any, not even a single call, not even a single interview, uh, not even a phone interview, I got nothing. <laughs> and so I took a job at the University of Texas El Paso as an instructor. Mm. Um, and I started teaching there because um, was, that was the one thing I got. Um, and I like it. It's, it's, a, it's a reasonable place, right? But I didn't study a PhD to forget about my research. Yeah. Like I didn't want to shine away from research, but being an instructional um, member of the department mean, means that I had to do a lot of teaching. Right. Yeah. Like I was teaching three, four courses a semester, um, and, and I was new. I also was, these were my first experiences teaching, which also means that it took me a lot more to prepare my courses, right? Because I was preparing from scratch all of these courses, right. and it was my first experience um, and so it wasn't a happy time professionally because all the time I was going teaching mm -hmm. and I wasn't able to do research. I tried to do research and I tried to, I had some collaborators, um, but I found it really hard to, to uh, have some time for that to make yeah. significant progress. And so that was for me like, I cannot stay here. I'm not going to stay here because this is not going to be where I'm going to be happy yeah. doing this. Um, I need to find other options. And that's where I found um, a postdoc position. I started applying for postdoc positions. There was an NSF program that was offering postdoc positions. Um, and I applied for that. But then I also uh, learned through a conference that, you know, UTD, the University of Texas of Dallas, had postdoc positions. Right. Um, and so I talked to the faculty and I applied for that position. I got one. So the postdoc at uh, University of Texas Dallas allowed you to go back to your first love of doing research uh, yes. and, and spend less time on teaching. 
So then uh, you were at uh, University of Texas, Dallas uh, until uh, 2009 or so. When you were going on the job market the second time around uh, near the end of your postdoc, was was it, did you have a, were you luckier? Did you, did you have an easier time? How was it? Yeah, so I, after um, getting some papers, after getting a grant at UTD, uh, my CV looked much different, right? Um, and so I submitted applications again nationwide. I wasn't discriminated by location. I just wanted my dream faculty job. Um, I got different interviews. I interviewed um, on campus at three different places. Um, and I got two job offers. You know where I go. <laughs> you know where I went. I ended up in Alabama. UAB, yes. Yes. Uh do you feel that um, from the first time you applied uh, when you had just finished your PhD in Mexico to the second time you applied when you had just finished your postdoc at UTD, that the major difference in you're getting that many interviews the second time around was just the CV itself or were there other factors involved, do you think? My impression is that getting a, having a career position, like a postdoc position at a U.S. institution was an important game changer, um, that and a grant, a small grant from NSF that we got, I think those are the, the factors that might have appeased some hesitation from other people. Um, I mean, I still got rejected and not even called for interview for the majority of my applications that mm -hmm. year, right? But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but at least I got at the door at three different places. Uh, so now you start as an assistant professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and uh, and I think you have spoken about this publicly as well that you you essentially had a family very early in your um, faculty life as well. How was that managing uh, a family, managing a baby, and managing your new career with new students and trying to get the research program started off uh, with the tenure clock running? How was that experience early on? So yes, I interviewed pregnant. Um, for these positions and so by the time I joined the faculty position I was um, it was August or end of August I, I talked to the chair so as soon as I got the offer I said you know what this is happening I'm pregnant so <laughs> I said can I come earlier can I start earlier so that I prepare and, um, and I also moved to the new city where the kid is going to be born because I didn't want to move just you know a few days before the kid is born I need to find doctor you know whatever but they were very accommodating. Um, and so they gave me an early start date. I moved um, and I started teaching. And, you know, a few weeks, I guess one week after the semester started, I went into labor hmm. to deliver the baby. <laughs> and so the first few months, um, they were definitely very hectic. And I don't have a lot of recollection of how things happen. <laughs> so that tells you, that tells me that it was very hectic, very crazy. But the one thing that I that I think was lucky for us is that my husband was at home at that time. I see. Uh -huh. And so he stayed with the baby the first four months while I went. I went back to teaching two weeks after I delivered. Yeah. And so I didn't went back like full time, but I was taking over my classes because I, I felt bad about my colleagues that someone was covering my my classes. And so I wanted to go back as soon as possible, as soon as I was physically yeah, it's, it's often talked about that the maternity leave that is in the U.S. is one of the smallest among all the countries out there in, in the world. 
It's non-existent. It's non-existent. <laughs> I mean, even now, it's serious. I'm speaking seriously. Even when you have an FMLA, a family yeah. medical leave policy, yeah. that doesn't mean that you have maternity leave because mm -hmm. what maternity leave means is that you have paid uh, salary while you take your leave of absence. Whereas in the U.S., you don't have you. You may they give you permission. FMLA in most universities means that you can take the leave of absence. Right. And they will save your job, but that doesn't mean you're going to get paid. Yeah, yeah. So that's very different, um, and it's important to know the distinction. And what ha ends up happening is that people use their sick and vacation days, right, to have some salary, right? Because right? most of us, and, and that's really frustrating part, because most of us are very children at the very beginning, and if you come from a background like I did. You don't have a support network that is going to pay for your expenses while you're on leave. So we don't, we cannot, basically cannot afford right. to be away from job because we need the money. Right. And so that's 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 a really sad yeah. uh, situation in the U.S. Um, it's better in industry though. Industry has the tech industry at least. Yeah. Um, has a very much more uh, comprehensive support. Right. Yeah, I, I think some of the tech companies certainly have a bit more of a liberal maternity leave uh, options, which yeah. are paid maternity leave. Um, so after your first semester, which you uh, which you said was very hectic, did things stabilize in your second semester and then the second year um, as you yeah. were getting handle of everything? I think what what helped um, what helped in my case is that during the postdoc, like again, I realized this is it. This is like my make or break chance. Like either I make it and I get my dream job, or I have to find something else, right? And so I really worked hard, and I was very fortunate to have such a wonderful mentor in my in my postdoc advisor, Yang Liu, right? That was so supportive and amazingly smart, um, and. We work hard to get papers, to get research ideas, so that when I joined the university, I already had the idea for my first grant. Mm. Um, and so I already had like this, this projects and this research direction where I wanted to go. And I don't think that's true for some, at least I don't think that's the case for the majority. When you start as a faculty member, you just finish your PhD typically, and you right. then now you have to start thinking about what am I going to do next. Right. Right. Where am I going to go? Am I going to continue with my PhD dissertation? I'm going to do this something else. Like, what do I want to do? What is going to? What is? What is it going to be? My first grant, and I wasn't there. I already did that during my postdoc, and I was already uh, ready to hit the floor running and start submitting another grant application and you know, mm. have research project ideas for students. And so, I think they made it much easier for me to not lose momentum. Um, Thank you, Point. So I want to ask a little bit about your um, the work that you do in natural language processing and applied machine learning is the the reason that you took to that area as opposed to you know other areas of machine learning. Uh, would you say some of the reasons have to do with your experiences growing up uh, you know in a border state? Um, what were the reasons you took to natural language as as an area of research? I was exposed to natural language uh, as a research in one of my ma master courses. Um, and I think during that course project, we ended up submitting a paper um, as a result. And I just liked it 
I, I felt when I was working on that, that it was, it came to me much more intuitively for me to understand and form hypothesis of what is happening. Um, and I also think that this, um, even though limited by this exposure to English, um, also helped me picture or imagine the, the difficulties and the challenges the, of, of the field. Um, and so I think that made me choose, uh, made me change. So my master's degree was in machine learning, in the machine learning field. Um, and for the PhD, yeah, I thought I want to move to natural language processing. I think that's an interesting area. So in 2014, then you moved um, to your uh, current place, uh, University of Houston. Uh, was when when you went on the job market, was it easier this time around negotiating for salaries for startups and things like that? Yeah. So um, I've been so as part of attending, you know, events, mentoring workshops like CRA W workshops mm -hmm. and CRA in general. I've, I've been exposed and, and understand that as female um, researchers, we tend to not ask for more. We tend to not negotiate. Um, it's always prepared uh, when, when, I, when I applied for University of Houston. So I applied because of personal reasons. My husband had to move to Houston and I decided to follow him. So otherwise it's going to yeah. be very hard. Um, and uh, so it's not that I didn't do a nationwide search like uh, the last time. So I just talked to them and said, hey, here's my situation. I need to move to New York Houston. Would you consider me? Yeah. Um, and then they invited me. Um, but I did negotiate when the offer came. Um, I did negotiate for a higher salary. I did negotiate for uh, a different startup package because I knew what um, also having been five years a professor I knew what I what I could use the money for if for example I asked for a postdoc position because I knew that having someone that is already trained will help me to get to publications faster um, while I revamp my lab from start from scratch again at University of Houston. I'm wondering if you have any tips or rules of thumb for our listeners um, who are women or belong to underrepresented groups um, who might have trouble negotiating um, because, you know, for, for various reasons. Yeah, so one thing is that we have to know the appropriate numbers. What is the range, right? Because if you ask for something that is very high, um, it's not going to work for you. But if you also ask for something that is low, then it's not going to help you as much. And so the first thing is that, you have to know the numbers um, that are reasonable, the ranges. So, for example, for my sabbatical position, I didn't ask people that were doing sabbaticals at industry. I want to know because I, nego I just negotiated with, with Bloomberg, right, a few months ago. Um, for other things like faculty positions, it's very easy to know the numbers because we can go to places like the Tolby survey, survey uh, of yep. CRA, and it has average salaries for the different universities, different types of universities, so you can know the range mm. of the salaries. Um, in some places, salaries are public. We used to be like that. Yep. It's, it's very sad to me to know that Texas 
move to a place where salaries are no longer of the public domain, which I think is really, really dangerous, particularly for underrepresented groups, because now we don't have the information to say, hey, uh, this person is making more money than I am, and we were hired the same year, or we have the same qualifications. We can no longer do that in Texas. But in other places, other universities, you can search for the salaries. Um, and see what other people in the same rank are, are, are making. And therefore, you make a justification. Right. That salary, right? The other thing that we have to think about is the startup package. What is it that you really need to be successful? Um, do you need, instead of, do you need more moving relocation exp- expenses? Do you need more money for equipment? Instead, or maybe you don't need money for equipment. You need it for travel. Um, or you need like those things are, are things that we have to think about what is it that we exactly need and just ask for it. Um, all reasonable demands in the, in, in most cases are going to be, uh, satisfied by a, a department that wants to, wants you to be successful. Mm-hmm. And if they're not, because they have restrictions and they're going to explain to you what, what is happening. Right. But salaries, there's salary. There's no reason why they should have. They, they should come back and say no. Like if you're asking for the right range of salary, then mm. it should be reasonable. And how um, tough or adamant should one be in negotiating? That's a hard question. This is why you have to put a balance between um, how much do you want the position? How much do you think that position is going to make you happy? And, and the demands that you're making, right? Your needs. Um, if your needs are not satisfied or satisfied 60%, are you going to still be able to be successful? Mm. Are you going to feel valued? Because that's the other thing. Why, what if five years on the road you're, you're bitter and you're resentful to your department because they didn't give you a higher salary, you think that you're not valued and you're going to move? Um, maybe it's better to just be uh, sincere and have these thoughts and analysis and say, you know, is this going to make me happy? Is this going to be enough for me? Um, am I going to be able to put roots here? And you don't have to stay in the same place, right? That moved once. Um, but when, when you join a department, I don't think you join with a plan of moving in five years. I think you join a department because you want to stay there. Yeah. yeah. So there's a trade-off there a little bit, right? It's well put. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast interview with Tamar Solorio, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Houston. I want to come to our last segment uh, of the interview, uh, Retrospective and Perspective. I want to start off by asking you what your philosophy is on handling failures and handling rejection. Um, As we have talked, you have had several instances of that in your career. Uh, Have you developed a philosophy or do you feel you have a philosophy for handling those? I wish I had. It's really hard. Failure is really hard and it's painful, honestly. Um, I, I take it sometime, a couple of days maybe, to feel sorry for myself, maybe one or two and say, <laughs> this is horrible. Um, but at some point, I pick up myself. Like I've been through this recently as well because um, I was rejected from a place when I, I wanted to do my sabbatical. Um, I had other... I have, 
I wanted other options. Not I'm very happy where I am. But before I was exploring this, I was exploring other places too. Um, and they shunned the door. And um, that that felt like a failure to me, like, like a rejection um, to me. But then you have to think about the process and you have to think about um, the truth of the matter is that it's not a personal rejection. Mm-hmm. It's like for some other reason that is always going to be unknown to me, I wasn't a good fit. Yeah. for the team, for the project, for what they wanted. Yeah. Um, and that's not a reflection of myself as a person. My worth is not on, on, um, on the hands of someone else. Yeah. And so when I think about this and I say, okay, so this is not the end of the world. I have other opportunities. I can explore other opportunities. And I, and I said, I'm going to find some other place. And I found a good place. And I'm really happy that I, that I went with Bloomberg. Um, I'm learning a lot with this team. But this is an opportunity that I wouldn't explore if I were just sobbing and, oh, I cannot get a sabbatical position and this is, you know, I'm a failure. And I had to face it again. And I had to face the fear of, of being rejected again, right? Yeah. But if you don't do that, then you don't get these amazing opportunities that come your way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I prefer, this, this, there is this phrase that sticks with me and it also helps me. This phrase that says that if you don't get rejected, you're not trying hard enough, <laughs> right? Um, and so someone that never gets rejected, they're probably underperforming or underestimating or not, not exposing themselves enough. And so yeah. Yeah. I take that. So I prefer to, to go with that philosophy and say, okay, yeah, so <laughs> I'm doing a good job of challenging myself and putting myself out there um, and it's okay to deal with rejection. Everyone has rejections. It's not like. That's very beautifully put. If you don't get rejected, you're not trying hard enough. Um, and and also I think uh, one of the beautiful things you said is acknowledging the emotional effect of a rejection and saying it's okay for me to feel bad because it was after all a rejection, but not getting stuck in that uh, for too long a time and moving to the next step after that. Exactly. Related to that, um, a lot of researchers suffer from the imposter syndrome where we sometimes feel or sometimes chronically feel that we don't belong where we are. Um, is that, do you have a philosophy for handling that or how do you advise your students handle the imposter syndrome? That is, that is honestly one of my hardest. Um, I, can, I can deal with failure or rejection like papers, proposals and whatever, but Imposter syndrome is really hard for me. And so what I do is I have my support network. I have, I'm I'm fortunate enough that I have this group of amazing women in the field that are like my trust people. And I feel like we have this circle of trust and I go to them and I say, I feel like I'm totally out of my league. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, I let it out with them. I vent out and they help. Like they come back and say, you know, they support and say they're good things. And um, that's like my last resource, right? When I'm really feeling like a lot of doubt and a lot of insecurities, I do that. When it's not that severe, like I have my list of things that I go through and I, okay, I've achieved this, I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. Like, why am I feeling like, like that? There's no reason, there's no logic, right? It's just some negative thoughts that are coming through my mind. Some Something happened during a meeting, something... Uh, or it, it makes me doubt myself. 
I have to come back and say, no, this is not, this yeah. is not real. And then I have to trust myself and I have to be kind to myself and recognize the success, whatever, big or small, but there's success. And so I have to acknowledge that. So the support network that you rely on, is this something you built um, sort of consciously or, or, or did it just organically happen throughout your career? It kind of organically happened. Um, that I admire this group of women that are very successful and that draws me to them naturally to talk to them, to, to try to collaborate. And I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to collaborate with them. And then through interactions and discussions and meetings that you form this like friendship It's really now at this point, I consider them my, my friends. Mm. We talked about all different things, not just career wise, but they are this important group where, because they know what I do, because they are part of the community that's really important, right? Because I can talk to my husband and say, I feel terrible, I feel like I'm useless. Yeah. Like, you know, what is he going to do? Yeah. <laughs> He's going to say, you're wonderful. But <laughs> what does he know? <laughs> right? He's not in this world. And so um, they are my rock in this case, where I'm, when I'm in the community. Someone that knows the community, someone that knows the field, someone that is being successful, um, and they can reassure me. Yeah. It sounds like there is a difference between sympathy, which your husband could express, and empathy, which your support network expresses and kind of understands what your mental state is. And that's the latter is more important. In this case, it is. In this case, I think it's um, because the way we think and the way we rationalize the we, then it, you take it more seriously when, when it's in that case, because you know yeah. that they understand better. Not that it's not well intended, both are well intended. Um, and, and I also think we shouldn't need to rely on these external sources. Um, but honestly, there are times where you get challenged with, when you're, for some reason, your insecurities are at that high. That I want to change gears a little bit and ask a couple of retrospective questions. So throughout your career, starting from your high school, middle school, high school in Mexico, and then your bachelor's, PhD, and then also your postdoc, uh, you have talked about several role models um, and mentors. Are there others that we haven't talked about that really influenced your life and you feel, looking back on your life, that they really changed or affected your career and your life? There are a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of people that I can say I'm thankful to having them in my life. Like uh, from elementary school, I had this wonderful teacher that uh, would tutor us. It was actually tutoring my sister, um, but I went there just because I'm such a freak that I wanted to learn and I wanted to start learning other things. And, and she was so kind and not, you know, not dismiss me because I'm not yet at the age where I needed to do stuff. Like I started learning before going to to uh, first grade. Like before we're supposed to learn to read, I was I was already reading. Um, because I was curious about it and I saw my sisters that were reading and doing homeschool um, schoolwork and I wanted to do that. She was um, a very nice role model of like a female um, knowledgeable person that had this knowledge to share. Um, and then, um, so during my bachelor's, I had a very good um, professor that taught me how to program. My first programming experience was with a, with a very good uh, person. And then the math uh, professor as well 
which was also female and was also super knowledgeable and but also very kind like very generous in giving feedback and said you know she will prepare these assignments for us and she will say i'm not going to grade them but if you want practice like this is what you should get and and you can give them to me and i will I'll review them with you but these are not for a grade so know that these are not for a grade and so but she would prepare this right um and so i really think she was she was such a nice role model for me um and then forward uh, moving forward then my postdoc advisor right yang liu was my first exposure close um closer in our field to a woman that was so knowledgeable but also so kind that she was um and always so friendly and always so approachable and um she was such a great person to have around in my at that time and still i can still talk to her i still cherish her friendship with very much um and there are these other women that i just admire for what they have done um, and how they approach research and how productive they are. Yeah, so there's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, the, the ones that stick to me are the ones that are generous and they are kind and approachable. Those seem like really important qualities, which we, we don't often talk about when we talk about um, hiring faculty or hiring researchers. Those um, um, extra qualities. Um, and, yep. In sports terms, they call it intangibles. Those intangibles really make a huge difference in how much a person influences others. They do, you know, and it's funny, we, it's so true that we don't rank them in any way when we are looking for, for people, but they're so important to make a department function. Yeah. Because those are the same people that will do the service, that are willing to put the extra mile, that are willing to say, hey, this is to, to work together, as opposed to have, you know, isolated stars that are being rock stars and yes, bringing good reputation to the department, but they're not really working together, yeah. pulling together in the same direction. Yeah. yeah. My next question is a little bit hypothetical and open-ended, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, so looking back on your life, had you not grown up in Mexico, but had instead grown up completely in the U.S., do you think your life and your career choices may have been similar or would they have been quite different? It's a purely hypothetical question. I mean, I, I think about that scenario uh, not that early in life. Um, I mean, just in general, I think the career choices would have been different. Um, the, the opportunities would have been different. Um, if that assuming that I am the same person that I am today, you yeah. know, because I'm, I'm really committed, yeah. I really want to do a good effort, and I really am competitive, and I want to do well. Um, but I do think about this in graduate school. Like I do think about what would have happened if I moved, immigrated for, for my PhD yeah. mm -hmm. instead of when I did. Yeah. Um, and I think that would have been very different. Mm. Um, not that I, I would have ended up being a faculty professor, but I would have, I have, I think the path to my dream job would have been shorter if I had emigrated earlier, because the opportunities would have been more uh, easily accessible. Right, right. So that awareness at that point um, of the PhD programs in the U.S. and those opportunities opening up would have changed your life quite a bit more. Quite a bit more, yeah. I'm not exactly sure about, you know, 
drastically more. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hypothetical. Yeah. Um, and just in general, I, I often feel like I have so many gaps in other areas of my life, like growing up, believe, living here in the U.S., and uh, growing up a family here, I have like this, I feel like I'm constantly filling these gaps in context and the cultural background. Um, sometimes it's exhausting, um, but that's what we do, right? As immigrants, we're always trying to, oh, okay, so this is what we're supposed to do. Oh, okay, so this is now what we're supposed to do. Oh, and this yeah. is what happens now. And, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a very common immigrant feeling. Um, missing some of the cultural references that get brought up um yeah kind of trying to find out hey what is this cartoon that they're referring to from the 1980s or whatever exactly <laughs> exactly uh, i want to ask a little bit about um bringing more girls and women into computer science into computer computational sciences and uh what philosophy you have you have already talked about several things uh, but what philosophies do you have for bringing more women into your program, into your department, and into computer science in general? I read about this. Um, and so uh, the knowledge that I have or the strategy that I have come from what the papers are read and, and the workshops we have attended about this. Mm. Uh, um, so, um, and I agree with best practices. So one of the, the big problems is the lack of role models, right? So if our department, like my career department, I'm the only female professor, tenure track professor, then that's really bad. We're doing a really bad job at, at, at sending a subconscious message to our female students that they can do this. Um, and the other, uh, that, that's one thing. Um, the other thing is um, making sure that we project the... Um, the knowledge, I mean, not the knowledge, but we have an attitude that anyone can be in this field. Like, I know some people don't agree with, with that, but I honestly think that if we put an effort and um, we allow a fair chance to everyone, anyone can be in this career. Anyone with an interest in this career can be successful in this career. Mm -hmm. um, and so making sure that that's communicated is a hard part because of the way we teach, because of the way we evaluate, because of the way um, the current environment is set up, it's just subconsciously we may not send in the correct message that everyone can make it here, right? Yeah, yeah, very beautifully put. Thank you, Tamar, for joining us on the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast and for sharing your journey and your story with us. Gracias. Oh, thank you so much. It was a wonderful opportunity to talk about myself. <laughs> this was episode 34 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. You have heard the immigration story of Tamar Solorio, professor of computer science at the University of Houston and renowned researcher in natural language processing and machine learning. If you liked this episode, you may also enjoy episodes 5, 6, 7, and 8 in season one of this podcast, where we visited Brazil and interviewed three prominent Brazilian-American computer scientists. Coming up next week, we visit another country in South America. We talk to a prominent immigrant American computer scientist who is, in all senses, an immigrant of the world, having lived in many countries on four continents, 
and of having survived a debilitating illness as a child and of raising a family from a young age and in a country that was under a brutal dictatorship and eventually of migrating to the United States. All of that is next week. Stay tuned. As usual, you can find all episodes and detailed episode guides on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. And you can find us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.